Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. As Hugh said, we are wrapping up our series uh, through the life of David. And uh, if you have a Bible, please, if you can, turn to First, First Chronicles chapter 22. First Chronicles chapter 22. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture from there. Uh, since today is the uh, start of football season and the Bears have their home opener at uh, 12 o'clock today, I thought it would be appropriate to share um, a few quotes from the legendary football coach Vince Lombardi uh, of the Green Bay Packers. And um, I hope my fantasy football team is listening, but uh, these would be good. This, is, this would be good for our, my fantasy football team to listen up to. Vince Lombardi said this, Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. If it wasn't everything, why would they keep the score? I can't argue with that rationale, can you? Uh, He says this, The dictionary is the only place that success comes before work. Hard work is the price we must pay for success. I think you can accomplish anything if you're willing to pay the price. And then one last one from, from Vince. Teamwork is what the Green Bay Packers were all about. They didn't do it for individual glory. They did it because they loved one another. Quotes are great for a talk or a sermon introduction, but they really are meaningless and don't really change our lives, do they? But what does change our life, what does impact us, what does transform us is not stuff that we find online, but it's when in a, in a very significant moment in our lives, in a very teachable moment in our lives, when someone that we love speaks a word in season into our hearts. You're not going to find those words on the internet. It's not going to be written by some famous person, but those are moments where our lives have been transformed. I have a number of memories looking back where, where someone has said, someone who loves me has said something that has impacted me and brought about transformation in my life. In a few weeks from now, we've invited Terry and Sandy Kruger to come and minister at our church at our 10th birthday celebration. And, and, and Terry was our pastor for many years back in South Africa. I remember one specific moment where he was just about to leave, 14 years ago, he was about to leave South Africa for the US and he gathered us together and he said these words. He said, sometimes the destiny and the call of God bring us together. Sometimes the destiny and the call of God take us apart. But either way, no matter how difficult it is, to be successful in the kingdom, we must learn to say yes to God. It really impacted me and, and, and changed me. And another one which I want to speak about today, Terry sat us down one uh, Saturday morning at breakfast. We were on a ministry trip uh, on the south coast of South Africa. And he sat us down at breakfast and he looked at us and he said to us, if you only have three years left at this church, what impact, what legacy, what mark do you want to leave behind? How do you want your life to, to impact the world around you for the kingdom of God? And that one, perhaps more than any other, has really challenged Debs and I, and I think God started to use that to speak to us about church planting and other things. What we're going to be looking at today in 1 Chronicles 22, and in fact, all the way through to 1 Chronicles 29 is the entire passage of Scripture. We're not going to read it all, but that's, that's the body of, of the text that we're going to be speaking out of, is a very similar situation to a, loved, a, a person who loves somebody in a very critical moment in their life, speaking a word in season that brings about transformation and change. And the example that we're going to look at is David, as just prior to his death, these are his final days on earth, just prior to his death, speaking to the son he loves, Solomon, instructing him and encouraging him on how he can leave a legacy behind for the kingdom. 
how he needs to live, how he needs to, to live his life in order to make a mark for the kingdom of God. And so I want you, if you wouldn't mind, just reading with me or just following along behind me. First Chronicles 22, and we're going to read a fairly lengthy passage, but starting at verse 7. These are the words that David says to his son Solomon. My son, he says, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. And you can actually read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, God speaks to David through Nathan. David had it on his heart to build a temple for the Lord. It was the one thing that David desired to do perhaps more than anything else. And yet God, for some reason, we're going to look at this in a while, God chooses Solomon to build the temple instead. Verse 8, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, David says, the Lord be with you, and may you have success and build a house of the Lord your God as he said you would. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver, quantities of bronze, iron too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. And you may have need to add to them. You will have many workmen, stonecutters, masons, and carpenters, as well as men skilled in every kind of work, in gold and silver, bronze and iron, craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work, and the Lord be with you. As James said when he was doing his announcements, this really isn't uh, an ordinary Sunday because, as he mentioned, it is the, the first Sunday of the school year. We kind of stand on the, preci- on the precipice of an exciting year ahead of us. The restful days of summer are over, unfortunately. There's a bit of a cool in the air. Don't you love that? I love wearing long sleeve shirts. I hate t-shirts. I love wearing long sleeve shirts. I'm excited about the fact that, that summer is over and fall is on the way. And as James mentioned, we are about to celebrate our church birthday. And so with it comes somewhat, a little bit of nostalgia as we reflect on the past and celebrate with what God has done, but also with intrigue and excitement, look forward to, to what we anticipate God still wants to do with many of us, with all of us, and with this church. And so with that in mind, I want this morning to be a little bit different. I want my heart, I've been praying that my heart would come across hopefully a little different this morning. Although this is not a farewell speech because I'm not going anywhere, I'm sorry to get some of your hopes up, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm certainly not dying, so this is not a farewell speech like it was for David, but I feel like God wants me to speak to you like a father, with a father's heart this morning. 
I'm not being presumptuous and saying I am your father. That would be way too presumptuous. Some of you, your worst nightmare. This is not a Darth Vader moment where I'm saying, Chris, I am your father. Join me on this mission. No, this is not a Darth Vader moment. This is not a Star Wars moment. But this is, this is a, an opportunity I feel like as we look forward into the coming months and years, I feel like God wants me to encourage us, instruct us like a father would to his children. Paul writes in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he actually says this to the church in Thessalonica. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and pleading and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And that really sums up what my prayer has been for this morning's sermon. That it wouldn't be so much me standing as, as teacher or, or one who would bring instruction and information. This is not a classroom situation today. I hope it's never a classroom situation on Sundays. But this is an opportunity, I hope, for me to, to urge you and to exhort you and to encourage you with a father's heart. As we look forward to say, guys, what are the things that God wants to do in us and do through us into the, into the coming months and years? And the way we're going to do that is I've looked through 1 Chronicles 22 all the way to the 1 Chronicles 29. And I've pulled out three summary questions that I think David is asking Solomon as he's instructing him prior to his death. They're not questions that are found in Scripture verbatim. We're not, we're not taking them directly out of Scripture, but they, they're the essence of what David is challenging Solomon with. And I want to stand here and challenge myself and challenge us as a church with these same three important questions. You'll see them behind me. The three questions are this. What will you do with God's presence? What will you do with God's choices? And what will you do with your treasures? What will you do with God's presence? What will you do with God's choices? What will you do with your treasures? The first question deals, or essentially asks, is Jesus first? The second question deals with asking, is Jesus Lord? And then the last one essentially is saying, is that reflected in your heart? Is the Lordship of Jesus, is the supremacy of God in your life reflected in the way that you live? And so we're going to jump in and uh, look at these quite briefly. It's not, believe it or not, it's not going to be a long sermon today, but uh, hopefully God will speak to us in spite of my relative brevity. What will you do with God's presence is the first question. What will you do with God's presence? We stand at the end of this journey that we've had through the life of David. And uh, if you've been with us for any part of that journey, or even as you take some time to possibly read these texts one day, you will notice that the Ark of the Covenant is a, is a very significant theme or a very significant part of the story of David. The Ark of the Covenant was simply a, 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 a wooden box, uh, which was overlaid with ornate gold, and it represented to Old Testament Israel, it represented the presence of God. If, if you've spent any time in Scripture, you will know that, that the presence of God is a very significant theme in all of Scripture, even way bigger than just David's life. I, I would even argue, perhaps, that it's probably the most important theme in all of Scripture, God desiring to dwell with His people. Moses says in that great text in Exodus 33, prior to even the ark being fashioned, Moses says to the Lord, he says, Lord, if your, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us out from here. 
How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and pleased with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and distinguish your people from the rest of the earth if your presence doesn't go with us? So we see in, in Moses the, the, the cry of, of, of all of our hearts to say, Lord, set us apart, distinguish us. How? By your presence. Fast forward to the new covenant, Jesus' death and resurrection introduced this new covenant that you and I are wonderful benefactors of. The fact is, there is no longer a box or a particular temple which houses the presence of God. You and I, by virtue of us being born again, are places, are temples that house the presence of God. That's a remarkable truth. I mean, think about that reality. God, in his wisdom, has chosen through the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and I. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are temples of God's presence. We are carriers, dwelling places for the presence of God. And can I just say, take a little aside and say, when I'm talking about presence, the presence of God, in this context, I'm simply meaning God's closeness, God's nearness, The fact that we are more consumed and concerned with God's closeness and God's nearness than the things that he brings us. I've used this example before, but when I traveled to South Africa earlier this year, my son was very excited to have me back. He expressed it for about five minutes. And then he asked the question, what did you bring me? What gift did you bring me? And I think sometimes in our immaturity at times, we are more focused on, on what God brings us, what God can give us, rather than just his presence. So when you hear the word presence, that's what I mean, the nearness and the closeness of God. Because you and I are, are temples of the Holy Spirit, that's why we, we can meet in a school auditorium like this. It means there's no longer holy buildings, special buildings that are set apart that God dwells in a building. It means that we can meet, God's presence is available to us, not just on a Sunday from 10 10 o'clock till 11.30, but every time you gather, whether it's here or at Starbucks or at a connect group or at a prayer meeting or at an equip course or at a red day, God is present with us. And the other great truth, friends, is there's no uniquely holy people. Just because I have the function of being one of the elders here, it doesn't make me more holy or more anointed or more gifted. It's just the calling that God has on my life. But each one of us, as we're going to see in a short while, has access into the presence of God. So this ark, the ark of the covenant, as I was saying, was was incredibly significant to David and incredibly important to the nation of Israel. Do you remember the story in, in, in Joshua chapter 6? Where, where God has led Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. And their first challenge is, to, is they come across this great fortified city called Jericho. And what does the Lord, what instruction does the Lord give David and, 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 and the nation of Israel? He says this, he says, march around the city six times with the Levites blasting trumpets. But he says this, he says, make sure that the Ark of the Covenant goes ahead of you. You see, Israel knew that when the Ark of the Covenant was present, when God instructed the Ark of the Covenant to be there, it was as if God was going ahead of the army himself. And you know the great story. They march around the the walled city six times, lift up a shout, and and the city walls come crashing down, and Israel rush in to take the city. Now I want you to fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and, and if you remember, first the early part of Samuel is the time when the judges were ruling over the nation of Israel. We looked at that during our series in Ruth, and, and that was a dark time for the nation. 
It was a time when Israel were, were doing, was doing their own thing. It was a time marked or characterized by disobedience to the Lord. And they were engaging in battle against the Philistines. Eli was the high priest. Eli was the judge at the time. And someone in the camp of Israel probably remembered what happened in Joshua chapter 6. Remembered when the Ark of the Covenant came out in front of Israel and Jericho collapsed. And so someone had the bright idea. They said this, you know what, guys, we are facing the, the Philistines. We're being defeated. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp and victory will be guaranteed. 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells a very different picture or tells a very different story. The Ark of the Covenant is brought into the Israelite camp. There's this huge cheer that is lifted up. The Israelites go confidently into battle and they are absolutely wiped out and defeated. And the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is captured by the Philistines. What was the mistake that the Israelites made? What was the assumption that they got wrong? The assumption or the mistake was this. The Israelites thought, we know how to control the presence of God. If we do the right things, if we do certain things, then God's presence is guaranteed and God's victory is assured. I don't want to be funny for the sake of it, but they were trying to put God in a box. And God will never be put in a box. He never will be put in a box. That was the great mistake that they made. And so David even himself makes the same mistake. We're not going to look at it, but in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when when David is wanting to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem to return God's presence back to the holy city, he makes the mistake of trying to do it on his own terms instead of following the instruction of the Lord. And so David is before his son and he's asking Solomon this question, Solomon, what are you going to do with the presence of God? Are you going to try and control it and use it for your own benefit? Or are you going to take the time to create a dwelling place for God's presence? And in this case, he was referring specifically to creating or building a temple. Can I say, guys, that we face the same temptation as Israel do all the time? You read church history, you read great moves of God, And every single great move of God is characterized by this, that when the revival is over, people try to come up with a formula or a method or a recipe to guarantee the same success in the kingdom as they had previously. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of my, uh, I've never met him, he's deceased, but one of my heroes, he's an incredible preacher who who was alive, preached in London during the Second World War. In the early part of, of, of his ministry, he was leading a church in Wales about 25 or 30 years after the Great Welsh Revival. And one of the things he writes in his memoirs is the fact that he would so often, whenever he tried to change anything in his church, you know what the number one response that he got every time? This is not how we did it in the Welsh Revival. This is not how we did it in the Welsh Revival. And he would face opposition the whole time. Friends, we we do the same thing. Most people sitting here are probably thinking, we need a little bit more of this, or a little bit less of that, and God's presence would be here on a whole bunch more emphasis than it is. We visit another church, and we experience God's presence, and we like, church in the city has got to do it like that church does it. And friends, I do it too. I'm not pointing fingers at you. There are Sundays when God is manifestly present. His glory is here. And you know what I do? 
I can't help myself. I go away thinking, what did we do specifically today that we can just bottle up and just kind of pop it open in a can and release it again next week? God doesn't work like that. And if there's one thing I want you to to take home with you today is remember this. Jesus, not our efforts, ensures the presence of God in our lives. Not our self-righteousness, not our success, not our proclamation of, 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 of good things over us, not our failures, not our weaknesses, not our shortcomings. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who bridges the gap between us and the Father and ensures that we can live a life knowing that God will never leave us nor forsake us, not because of what we've done. And so I want to ask you this question. If you want to make an impact for the kingdom of God on the world around you, what will you do with God's presence? Are you going to try and control it for your own benefit? Or in this season, will you be intentional about taking the time to steward your heart well, to create a dwelling place for the presence of God? Secondly, what will you do with God's choices. I find this so fascinating because David was, the the one thing he desired to do more than anything else was David desired to build this temple. And for whatever reason, God chose his son, Solomon. In verse 10, we read it earlier. God says to David, you will have a son and he is the one who will build a house for my name. Don't turn there, but in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 1, David is, is, is speaking to the nation of Israel and he says, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen. David acknowledged that God, for whatever reason, had not chosen him, but rather had chosen his son. And so later on in his encouragement to, to Solomon, he says, David, as he says, Solomon, because God has chosen you, I I remind you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. The choosing of God and the calling of God is one of those difficult theologies to understand. And I'm not copping out, I'm not not avoiding it, but it's not the time and place. And hence my exhortation at the beginning. I want to stand before you as a father exhorting you, not as a teacher explaining every detail of scripture. The reality of God's word is that he calls and he chooses. And we need to be comfortable with that. God never chooses on the basis of our expertise. Friends, God doesn't choose like your boss chose you in a job interview. God doesn't line you up with multiple candidates and say, oh, I'm, I, I need to interview these guys. I need to interview these, these people for this ministry that I want to start. Who brings the best kind of skill set for what I'm calling them to? God doesn't choose on that basis. Abraham, the father of our faith, was a moon worshiper. Moses, one of Israel's greatest leaders, murdered an Egyptian and then ran away to the desert to hide from God for 40 years. David was the runt of his family. Peter, when called by God and called by Jesus in Luke chapter 5, said to Jesus, Get away from me. I am a sinful man. And you know what? Jesus didn't disagree with him. And even Paul, even Paul, who on the surface seems like the most qualified of God's people, a rabbi, learned in the ways of the Jews, what does God do? 
Sorry, Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. God never chooses on the basis of our expertise. And so I want to say, friends, there's not one person here disqualified from the plan and the purpose and the calling and the choosing of God. He has a plan for your life. God chooses us for salvation. As difficult as it is to, for some to swallow, that's what Scripture teaches. God chooses for salvation. It feels like we choose. But remember our Ephesians series? Before we knew God, we were dead. How can a dead person do anything? It's God who first initiates. It's God who first romances. It's God who first breathes life into us to enable us to respond to, her, to his initiative. God's choice and God's calling continues throughout our life. The marriage that you're in, the, the, you know, the, the, the role that some of you has as parents, the job that you are in, the ministry you are doing, God calls and chooses. And this is why it's important. This is why I wanna emphasize this particular point. When God calls, when you can settle the call of God and the choosing of God for a particular season or a particular ministry or a particular career or job or, or a particular relationship he's calling you into, there are three things that can happen. Number one, you can respond with incredible confidence. You can be incredibly confident because you know God has called you. Despite the hardships, despite the difficulties, despite the opposition that comes against you, if you know that God has called you to this marriage, called you to raising children, called, called you to a job, called you to a ministry, you can be confident. And can I just say, everyone who is married here, God has called you to that marriage. I just want to clarify that. Don't think, well, God didn't call me. No, no, no. The moment you said yes to your spouse, God's called you and God's chosen you and God wants to equip you to be able to be a spouse to your husband or wife. I just feel I need to clarify that. Incredible confidence, but in contrast, incredible humility. And why is that? Because you know if God's called you, he could have easily have chosen the person next door. And I think that's how God releases his empowering grace into our lives. He gives us confidence, but he wants us to operate with amazing humility. And even the third point is this. Even like David did, when God chooses someone else, you are able to get behind them and support them, not be bitter and twisted that God didn't choose you. Do you want to make an impact for God's kingdom? Do you want to allow the kingdom of God to impact the world around you? I want to ask you this question. What will you do with God's choices? Are you willing to say yes to God's yeses? Are you willing to say yes to God's noes? Is God or is Jesus Lord of your life? And then lastly, this last point, what will you do with your treasures? What will, you do, what will you do with your treasures? Verse 14 in 1 Chronicles 22, that passage that we looked at, describes this amazing abundance of, of, of the gifts that David brought uh, into the building of the, of the temple. And, and, and when we first read it, let's just read verse 14. I've taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord. 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed and wooden stone. We, you can read that and, and, and think that David is supplying these great treasures from the storehouses of Israel. 
But actually, if you read 1 Chronicles 29, David says, I'm giving from my own personal treasures. In verse 3 of, of chapter 29, he says this. He says, and now, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help with the construction. What enabled David to do this? What enabled, what enabled David to be so lavish in giving of his personal, personal treasures? Firstly, he realized that the task before him of building a house, a dwelling place for the glory of God was a great and magnificent task. In verse 1, he says this, The task before me is great because this structure is not for man, but it is for God. In chapter 22, he says, The house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in sight of all the nations. Can I remind us, friends, David is speaking about building a temple for the Lord, but Jesus is building a quote-unquote temple in the new covenant today. Jesus is building something that is equally magnificent and equally grand in the sight of all the nations. It's the only thing that Jesus says, in fact, that he is building. It's his church. It's his people. Jesus is building his church. And I want to I challenge you. I want to ask you, do you see that task? Do you see the task of building church as magnificent and grand in the sight of all the nations as Jesus does? David was able to, get, able to give of all that he had because he was devoted to that which the Lord was devoted to, to. And this is so important. He knew that everything he had came from the Lord anyway. Friends, that's the secret to being able to give things away. That's the secret to being able to give our hearts away, our time away, our treasures away. Is because we realize that God gave it to us first off. In chapter 29, David writes this. He says, wealth, or he says this, wealth and honor came from you alone. For you rule over everything. Everything we have comes from you and we give, only, we give you only what you first gave to us. Friends, us giving back to God, us using what we have, treasures, time and talents, us using those for the advancing of God's purpose is like my son Caden giving me a birthday gift. He's eight years old. I don't believe in child labor. He doesn't have a job. The pocket, the allowance that he has is allowance money that I worked hard for, that I earned and I gave to him. But he goes out to get to buy me a birthday gift and I receive it, not saying, well, thanks Caden, but don't forget, buddy, I actually paid for that. I don't do that, no. I'm like, Caden, you went and bought me a gift? Thanks, buddy. That's amazing. That's how God views us when we use our time, our talents, and our treasures for him. He gave it to us anyway. And I love verse 17 of 1 Chronicles 29. Don't turn there, but David talks about having integrity of heart. I was so challenged when I read that. Can we truly say, can we say with integrity that God, that Jesus is Lord unless we are prepared to lay everything down at his feet. Can we really say, Lord, Lord, unless we are willing to lay everything down at his feet? It's possible to be generous without being wholehearted in your love for God. But it's not possible 
to be wholehearted in your love for God without being generous. The goal here is not generosity, friends. The lesson learned is not generosity. The lesson learned is wholehearted worship, wholehearted devotion to God. Generosity automatically, easily flows from that. Do you want to make an impact for God's kingdom in the world around you? What will you do with your treasures? Does Jesus have your whole heart? And so I just want to read those three questions to us again as we bring this into land. We're standing at the beginning of a new year, as it were. We're excited and we celebrate the past. God has done amazing things. He's been good to us all. And there is a sense of, and certainly in my heart, and I know in the eldership team, there's a sense of excitement and intrigue. We're, 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 we're anticipating. There's, an, there's a sense of anticipation of what God is doing in our midst. Something very exciting, we believe. We don't know what, I'm not, trust me, I'm not kind of piquing your interest to, to give a surprise next week. I don't know what it is. But there's a sense of, of prophetic anticipation in our hearts that God is doing something. And with that in mind, I want to ask us all and myself, what will you do with God's presence? Is Jesus first in your life? What will you do with God's choices? Is Jesus Lord of your life? What will you do with your treasures? Does Jesus have your heart? Before I hand over to Hugh and for Hugh just to facilitate any ministry, I want to do something a little different as we close this morning. Stephen, if you can just put that uh, final slide up for me, thanks. This is a passage from 1 Chronicles 29, part of the, a psalm or a prayer or a poem that David recites in, in glorifying and honoring God. And I want us to do something maybe a little differently. This might stretch some of you. It's really not that bad, I promise. What I want us to do is I want us to say this poem, this psalm, this prayer together, to speak it out loud, not quietly in your heart, but to speak it out loud. It's, a, it's simply a psalm or a poem that declares the greatness and the goodness and the majesty of God. It's a poem or a psalm that takes our eyes off of our situations and lifts them to the Lord Almighty. That's what worship is. Worship is magnifying the name of the Lord. When you are going through tough times, often the situation or the circumstance that you are facing, health, financial, relational, takes priority, starts to cloud your perception of God. When we magnify the name of the Lord, when we exalt the name of the Lord, all we are doing is bringing our focus in on the truth of who God is. I know there are some of you here, as you start this new year, you're probably not feeling that excitement or that anticipation. You might be going through some difficult financial times or relational issues. I want us, yes, we'll pray for you, but I want us as a community, as a family, as we start this year to say, God, we want this year to be all about you. We want this year to be all about you. So can you read with me? All right. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty.
worship you, we glorify you, we magnify you this morning. Lord, as we, as we stand on, at, the, at the beginning of this year, Lord, we want to make this declaration. Jesus, let this year be all about you. May our lives truly be laid down before you, every area, our successes, our dreams, our desires, our failures, our shortcomings, our weaknesses, and our shortfalls. Thank you, Jesus, that you are not surprised by our failures. You are not caught off guard by our struggles, but you receive us just as we are. And so, Lord, because of you, we, we, we happily, we eagerly come and we say, Jesus, take us, take us all, take everything. Father, thank you that you have blessed us with so much. We do look back with incredible gratitude and thankfulness and celebration. But Lord God, we also look forward with excitement and with intrigue over the things that you are wanting to do in our hearts and lives. I pray, Father, that we would go from this place, not, not looking for formula, not looking for recipes to make things happen, but Lord, may we be, may every one of us in this room leave here with that ability to be faithful stewards that would guard our hearts to create a dwelling place for your presence. May we be a people, Lord God, comfortable and excited by the choices and the calling that you make. And may we get behind that which you are doing. Lord, forgive us and me too. I know I've done this, Lord, where at times you've, you've chosen something else or you've gone in a different direction and, and, and I've pouted and I've got frustrated and I've thrown a temper tantrum. Lord, I want this year to be a year when we get behind everything that you are doing and not do anything that you are not in. And Father, I pray, Lord, that my heart, all of our hearts, would be wholly devoted and submitted and yielded to you this year. We want to give you everything. Thank you, Lord God. Just as we stay in this place of prayer, quickly want to invite, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is the day of salvation. We don't come to God on our terms. We don't come to God cleaning ourselves up, hoping that we will be acceptable in His sight. The way you are right now, God wants to rescue you, God wants to save you, God wants to receive you just as you are. We don't give our lives to him so much as we receive his free gift of the son who died on the cross, Jesus Christ, for our sins. If that's you today, I would love to pray with you right now so that you, right where you are seated, can receive Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior. I'm not gonna call you forward, but I would love just to lead you in a short 30-second prayer where you can say, Jesus Come into my heart. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. If that's you, just quickly lift up your hand. I'd love to lead you in a prayer right now. Anyone who would like to respond to that invitation to receive Jesus today, to receive him as Lord and Savior, to come into relationship with God the Father. Anyone this morning who would like to receive that? Thank you, Father, for your amazing gift, the gift of your Son. May we never forget Jesus. May we never forget that you are the way that we can live forever in the presence of the Father. We love you, we praise you and worship you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.